We'll turn it down to about Exodus chapter number 3 with us this evening. And we've been preaching for a few weeks on the life of Moses and about how the Lord brought him to, so to speak, the end of himself. And we started out by the story of Zacchaeus and his coming down out of the tree as being a a factor that's in the life of every person who comes to faith in Christ, he has to he has to be brought down. You know, you have to come to the end of yourself, and the consequence of that is it carries over into the Christian life, in that uh, every person comes to the end of themselves and uh, recognizing that there is no um, power, no profit to the flesh. And if we try to live the Christian life in the flesh, then uh, we'll get in all kinds of trouble and usually cause trouble. Uh, that's why I tell people, you know, uh, a lot of trouble in churches is caused by the flesh. The flesh causes all kinds of trouble in churches. Uh, churches would be pretty well sinless and uh, trouble trouble free if it were not for the flesh getting onto somebody and somebody expressing their flesh rather than the will of God. So anytime you have that, you suspect and you can be assured that it'll happen because uh, uh, we just all can't seem to. Uh, live in the Spirit. We uh, don't walk in the Spirit. And uh, when we don't walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the Bible says it and guarantees it and assures us of it. Uh, but it still happens. still happens all the time. So in Moses' case, he um, he started out uh, under, I think we could say, the providence of God taking care of him, getting him through this episode where the Pharaoh wanted all the male Hebrew sons, ch- children to be killed. And uh, the Lord has brought him into this world in the midst of this very strong decree. And uh, we don't have a report of the Scriptures of how many sons were killed, but it's quite obvious that um, some were, and the issue came down that the Hebrew midwives were instructed to go along with the Pharaoh on this, and they feared God more than they feared the king or the Pharaoh, as did Moses' mother and father. Because Moses' mother and father refused to, to uh, surrender him. You know, if the Pharaoh was uh, volunteering or asking people to volunteer to give up their sons, uh, they didn't volunteer. They went the other direction. They hid him. They put him aside privately so that they'd never find him. And so obviously for the Lord to bring him into uh, uh, existence on this earth in that period of time when the decree was so relevant and uh, recognize that his own parents feared the Lord so much that they would not surrender him, and to recognize that the Hebrew midwives who had a direct command from the Pharaoh of Egypt to kill the boys, and they would not because they feared the Lord more than they feared the king or the Pharaoh. And to know all of that and, and to know then how God providentially took care of Moses and brought him out of the same waters that the sons were being drowned in is on, on the other side of the coin very amazing. And what happens is is to have Moses' mother be chosen by the um, Moses' sister who was nearby watching all this transpire about the babe in the bulrushes. And she gets Moses' mother to come down there. And Moses' mother gets paid to nurse this child as long as, and we don't know how long, some suggest by the custom of the Egyptians that it could have been his whole life because once she stopped taking care of him as a child, she would have been the one that would nurture him in the things of, of uh, what we would call 
good hygiene and health matters and so forth. Some believe that she stayed with him for the whole whole time. Others say, no, we've got about 20, and some suggest there's a reason for the number 20. But anyway, that she left, and she'd go about her business and left Moses in the palace. Whatever the case is, he stayed in the palace, got 40 years in, where that he was learned and educated in the what we call the wisdom of the Egyptians. We call it that because that's what in the inferred in the Scripture. For instance, go back. If you've got your place in Exodus chapter 3, go back to one of the 711 texts and remember these two. It's Acts chapter 7 and it's Hebrews chapter 11 that give us the, the um, insight concerning Moses. So in chapter 7 of the book of Acts down to verse number 22, uh, it says in verse 22, And Moses was learned... And that's our word, educated. He was well educated or was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And um, it's not to say that that came about because he was trained in Egypt. Uh, It's most likely that the Lord gave him that ability and so forth, and he may have learned well and learned quickly. But uh, what he was picking up on was that uh, that won't do. That won't work for what God has in mind for him. And we will learn through all of this that though Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds, the education of Egypt is like the education in America. It won't get you ready to be a faithful servant of the Lord. It's not geared toward that. In fact, it's uh, pretty much geared to make you uh, self-centered, arrogant, and uh, somehow, some way, think that the world turns on your interest. And it, that doesn't work. That's not what the Bible sets up for any of us. So, uh, in fact, uh, let me point out a couple of things where we're, we're in the New Testament. We're in the book of Acts for that moment. Look, if you would, from Acts chapter 7. Look over to, uh, well, look at Luke chapter 16. I was reading this in devotions the other day and thought about its application to what we're talking about. Look at Luke 16. Look at verse number 15. In Luke 16:15, the Bible says, And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. And he's talking about the Pharisees. Verse 14 will tell you that. You are they which justify yourselves before men. Somebody said that's what education will do for you. You'll get to a point where you think you know everything. And you think you don't need to learn anymore. And you'll think other people are stupid. These Pharisees believed that and thought it very well. But he says, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And you ought not forget that. Watch out when the world starts patting you on the back and congratulating you for making great strides in matters of education and, quote, worldly wisdom. Because what that is, is an abomination to the Lord. But it goes even further. Look from where you are in Luke chapter 16. Look on over to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, here you go down to, uh, in chapter 1, down to, oh, about verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise, and where is the scribe, and where is the disputer of this world? 
Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And it's a prescribed answer. It means it's asked with an assumption that the answer is they don't exist. He's done away with them. They're, they're out of existence. Verse 21, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. That is, the world's wisdom does not lead one to know God or to know Him better. It pleased God by the foolishness, which is in contrast to wisdom, the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So in the passage of Scripture, it's um, um, education in Egypt or education in America are maybe highly esteemed, but they do not contribute to people being coming godly and usable in the work of the Lord. So what you have to watch out for is that you get yourself under Bible training along with understanding of knowledge and things that might be useful and practical of the world and science and so forth. But watch out when you get to science because this world is absolutely bent on teaching evolution. And so they sort of kick it in everywhere they can, and consequently that poisons the water. So anything you take from that group of people is going to be suspect as far as what's learned and what might become an abomination to God. There's also uh, schooling in Egypt could not uh, do for Moses, and back over to Exodus chapter 3, could not do for Moses any more than what America's education system can do for him, and that is equip him for the service God had planned for him. And so after he gets 40 years inside the palace, uh, God uh, works the wrath of man to please him. And so in this particular case, Moses steps out believing that, and I believe he believes with all of his heart, that he is the deliverer of Israel. I believe he knows that's what God chose him for because Acts chapter 7 says that. He assumed when he killed that Egyptian that the Israelites knew that God had called him to do. The problem was, that's not what God called him to do. God did not call Moses to kill the Egyptians off one at a time. He, um, he had a plan that would incorporate making Moses what he wanted him to be while he used him to glorify himself. And killing the Egyptian the way he killed him was absolutely not something to glorify God. That didn't accomplish that purpose at all. It's as if the Lord sees what he does and says to him, of course, the Lord having omniscient power, he certainly knew it ahead of time, but seeing him do that, it's immediately as if uh, he somehow gets the word to the Pharaoh to get Moses to have to come to be the backside of the desert. Now, What's interesting about that, and you can draw your own conclusion, when you read the text, it seems to me to say that one of those guys went out, you know, the second day, and he saw two Hebrews fussing and fighting, and he got in between them and reprimanded them and rebuked them for their conflict with each other. You recall that. Well, I believe that one of the guys who he rebuked who didn't think he ought to get a rebuke, I think that's the guy that went and told the Pharaoh. I think this guy said, look, you're not a lord over us. The Pharaoh's lord over us, and I'll go tell on you. When I was growing up in school, uh, that was a big deal. You know, a kid go tell on somebody. In our school, though, we settle things like that on the playground. You just let one kid go tell on somebody else on the playground, and it is assured he'd never go tell on anybody else. But they never hit him, never, never bullied him, never threatened him. All they did was they just look at him as a group. Scared a kid to death. You know, he was sure they were going to take his clothes at gym. They were going to do something. He was going to embarrass him. And so he'd never go tell on anybody. 
Now, the thing about that is I'm confident that it was one of those Hebrews that went and told the Pharaoh. But again, I believe the Lord is working behind the scenes, and it works out exactly the way he wants it. Moses has spent the 40 years inside the palace. He's gotten an Egyptian education. He's gone through all the processes of knowing how they operate. And then the Lord brings along this dispute between two Hebrews or allows it to happen. The two Hebrews in such conflict that one of them is upset and uh, I suspect he goes tell the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh then starts to look for Moses to kill him, and Moses hits the road. Now, that puts Moses where God wants him. Here's the point to be made. Sometimes the things that go wrong, that you think were wrong, then did not go well, it may well be that God permitted them, and maybe, just maybe, fully orchestrated them. I believe that happens at New Life Baptist Church, and I believe it's happened on occasion where uh, other people in our fellowship would know it and see it, and some have and call my attention to it. This happened. We would not look at that and say that's a good thing, but in the end, we saw what it did, and what it did, it got this thing straightened up. I believe God does that. I believe that's why that uh, we sometimes get ourselves all worked up and worried and fretting over things not working the way we think they should, and they're not falling into place the way we think they should, and they're not working out the way that would be best for our perception. And the Lord was saying, look, I orchestrate things. I allow these things. It's not that God would have done it this way if you sought his will, but the fact is that you did it this way, and it's a mess. He's not above fixing messes. He's sort of the the brawny paper towel guy. You know, you spill the whole coke on the counter and you rub in in these other towels and it doesn't get a half of it up you take one of the big brawny thick towels and rub it across and all of it's gone that's sort of how god works with the thing and he's not he's not shocked he's not surprised he's not stunned he's not uh, he's not bent out of shape he doesn't press the emergency button he's calm cool and collected about it and that's exactly what he would want from us I don't see anything in this other than the fact that Moses feared the Pharaoh in leaving. I don't see anything in this that shows he's all been out of shape. I think that he loved the Hebrew people, his people. Uh, I believe he knew that the Lord had called him to deliver them. And I believe that he rested in that. So when this episode came up with the, the Pharaoh, I think he really did in his heart, no problem, I'll just leave here. And I'll let the Lord do and work in my life. So if I'm supposed to be the deliverer, I'll be back here. And he absolutely did. Now, the Bible didn't de- determine all that and doesn't relate it to us, but there's perception within the text. Let me call attention to a few of these as we read. Look at chapter 3, verse number 1. Now, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God even to Horeb. What's uh, interesting uh, in the, these verses that uh, this word kept carries with it the idea of just giving attention to uh, where you have uh, uh, oversight. That's all the word in the Hebrew would carry with it. Moses had the oversight of the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. And then it says, and he led the flock. Now that word carries with it a, a controlling uh, he was not over just oversight of it to say, you know, that the flock's under my, you know, responsibility or uh, my job or whatever. It's not just that. The ideal of leading it is decision making. 
and he led them to the backside of the desert, and the basis of that is it's the best place because it's one, it's uh, less intrusive. There wouldn't be as much conflict with other people and so on and so forth. It's in the backside of the desert, hinder part. The, the uh, word in the Hebrew carries with it the ideal that would be way away from everybody. It's like what the monks did when they built their monasteries. They tried to get it away from everybody. And if I, you recall in a service or two ago, I mentioned about the first early going of the monks. They built their buildings in a village-like thing, and they were trying to get away from people. And the people in the cities came out to look at them like they were animals in the zoo. And so the monks just kept building further and further away from civilization. And finally, they got into some mountain where there was only one way up and one way down, and they blocked the way up. So once they got up there, they had to stay up there. They came, became self-sufficient. That's a part of the idea in verse number 1 where uh, Moses takes care of this flock of Jethro, and he takes it to the backside of the desert. They won't be it. And, and again, I think the Lord is impressing on his heart uh, to be secluded. Remember, he's trying to stay away from the Pharaoh, and the further he can get away from him, the better off everybody will be. So he's taking him to the backside of the desert. And it's interesting, when uh, the Lord is uh, um, equipping somebody for his service, only he can do it and do it well. So the thing is, you take out all the other people who might have a negative effect on what God's got in mind. And uh, honestly, when uh, I went off to school, um, I left behind some folks at our church, some young men that were not the best um, uh, role model. They were not been the best influences on my life. And uh, I'm confident when I went off to school and left those guys behind, I gained some ground by just disassociation. One of the things in, uh, in uh, the Christian life is, is to um, make sure you come out from among them and be separate of people who do not have a mindset to obey God as you should and I should. If you run with people who compromise on what they do due to peer pressure, you're looking at somebody who whole of their life will be taken up with that kind of compromise, and they'll ruin their lives by trying to please people rather than please the Lord. You need to have enough backbone about you, whether it's in your family or whether it's in your your personal relationship with the Lord, whatever it is and however it works, you need to have backbone of conviction to decide what God wants and then don't bend, don't bow, and don't break. Just say, this is what the Bible says, and I'm sticking by the guns on it. Too many people have this tendency of being what I would refer to as um, fickle. You know, they don't have a backbone of conviction. They just have preferences. Oh, I think this would be nice if you do it this way. We're not talking nice here. We're talking about what God would have you do and, how, and on what he would have you to stand. So the issue of that is sometimes other people will influence you to compromise. And, and that means your convictions are very weak. And um, a parent cannot have weak convictions and expect to grow kids with strong convictions. Be strong in the Lord, the Bible says. It doesn't say be weak or a weakling. Uh, this world loves to see weak-minded Christians, Christians who do not know where they stand, what they believe, how they believe, how far they'd go in defending it, how far they'd go to fight for it, or how far they'd go to absolutely give their lives for it. They, some never get there, never talk about it. 
In this particular case, Moses is leaving everything behind and all that he was familiar with for the first 40 years of his life here in Exodus chapter 3, and he gets to the backside of the desert, and verse number 2 then says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. You know, it's interesting that um, um, when he turns his back on Egypt, um, just like students of the Lord when they're called into the ministry, they have to pretty well make up their minds to go to the backside of the desert. Because if you can do, in fact, when we were in uh, pastoral class at Tennessee Temple, one of the first things that Dr. Robertson said to us, if you can go do anything else, you need to leave the class right now. And he was talking to guys who said they're going to call to preach. He said, if, if you can do anything else, you need to go back and do it right now. And he, he said, I'm going to give you a few minutes to think that over, and I'm going to give you a few minutes to leave. And there were guys got up in pastoral class, got up, and walked out the back door. Because in their call, they were not convinced that they couldn't do something else, and uh, his point was well taken. Uh, if you... Uh, if you've not sold yourself to this cause, you're not on board with the cause. So the best thing to do is go ahead and quit right now because you'll quit eventually. So quit now and save yourself four years of college or Bible college. And when I saw those guys walk out, I really took a second look at my own heart. Am I sure that I've been called to do this? Is this the thing that the Lord would have me do for the rest of my life? Well, that's part of the ideal of getting Moses on the backside of the desert, so he's turned his back on Egypt. And somebody said, and I think rightly so, the hand of man can never mold a vessel meet for the master's use. The one who intends to use the vessel is the only one who can make it so. I believe that's true. I believe that's true. And I don't believe Bible colleges make preachers. I don't believe that's true. Uh, I've heard some men who were uh, poorly educated. Um, I heard a, I don't know whether it was a tape or uh, a radio message. I don't know how it came about. But it came out and uh, was said to be D.L. Moody. And I can tell you that I've never heard a preacher slaughter the king's English more than D.L. Moody did. And the reason was because he didn't have any education. But there probably isn't anybody who has shaken the world as deeply as D.L. Moody did. I think, and I've said this before to people, I think D.L. Moody is the epitome of God's work in showing us that if you get the idea that you can go off to Bible college or seminary and come back and be everything that you ought to be as a preacher, you miss the point of calling. Because if God's put his hand on a guy, and that's what he's going to do with Moses, Moses has had 40 years in training of what then was the very best education you could get your hands on, Egyptian. They were considered the empire of the world during his day, and the golden empire. In fact, I have a book in my library of the golden empire of Egypt. And in it, there are stories about how advanced they were in approaches to life and inventions and such. You just say, you marvel at these people, how unbelievable smart they were. And Moses was educated in that environment. But the problem was, it's man's education. And what Moses is called to do is deliver men from bondage. 
And what that's going to take is something at the feet of God himself. So from the great palace of Egypt, you have Moses into the sheepfold on the backside of the desert. Uh, and yet, interestingly enough, which you only see it as time goes on, it was a promotion for Moses. Moses is promoted. He's not going to be anything in the palace of the, of the Pharaoh, but he's going to be God's spokesman. And uh, I've been telling you that if you read the book of Leviticus, you could see it often in the beginning of uh, almost all the chapters. It says, and God said to Moses, or God spoke to Moses, or God spoke to Moses and Aaron. It goes all through the book of Leviticus. Well, I've got news for you. I'm now in Numbers, and he does the same thing in Numbers. So it just keeps on. Moses is the guy who God talks to. And there are not many of those guys recorded for us in Scripture that God actually spoke with. And yet God spoke repeatedly. The whole of the priesthood and all of its details was given to Moses to give to Aaron, to Aaron to give to his sons, and his sons to speak to all those other Levites that were called into the priesthood. God gave it to him. God spoke to him. Inspiration of the Scripture had proven better anywhere in the Bible than in Leviticus and Numbers concerning that very thing. So it was a matter that Moses now has been promoted. He's on the backside of the desert. He's tending to sheep, and yet he's going in the direction that God wants him to, to be trained for a deliverance of thousands of the Hebrew slaves. And it's true that God's ways are not our ways, but it is also true the ways of God are sometimes obnoxious. I mean, you think about it. You just think about the fact that here's Moses who had, uh, no doubt, indoor plumbing at the palace. If he wanted to take a shower, I bet you he stood on marble. If he wanted to uh, have some time where he'd have a relaxing time under the sun, I'm sure there was a private quarter where he'd have the sun ahead of him and there'd be curtains all around him and he'd be lying on some silk and satin bed. I mean, he had it made in a big way. The Egyptian lifestyle and culture, even that far back, historians say, was the most luxurious that anybody could have possibly had. And he was right in the middle of it. Was accepted fully until the day that he killed that Egyptian. And when that happened, Moses' world changed, but he got a promotion. And this promotion is that he's now under God's auspices, and what God's going to do with him can be very obnoxious. He's backside. I don't know if you've ever been around sheep, but if you've ever been around sheep or goats, you can smell them for a half a mile. I mean, they're the awfulest smelling thing. We had a man in uh, our city in Tennessee, uh, uh, A.D. Brown. And Mr. Brown, I've told you before, he had a, a gander duck, and they called him Gander Brown. That was his name. Um, but Mr. Brown, A.D. Brown, his attitude was that that duck was smarter than most men, and he let that duck sit, and that goose sit right beside of him while he drive, and this goose would stick its head out the door and call while he was driving by, and he'd see some other animals, and the goose would stick its head out and start calling, you know, quacking or whatever. And the fact, he just he knew it was smarter than men, he said, and so that's why he let it ride with him in his truck. The point about that is he had a bunch of goats. He asked me to come down, and a neighbor of mine to come down and help him herd those goats in, and he wanted them uh, shirt up. You know, he was going to shear them down and clean them up and so forth. I have never had such a stinking job in my entire life. That's the stinkingest barn I have ever been around in my life. And I've been in hog barns. I've been in chicken barns. I've been in all kinds of environments where it was dirty, it was stinking, it was awful. But I've never been around anything stunk so bad. So when he brought the goats in, we finished them, he wanted to shear the sheep. 
and they stunk just as bad. Maybe because they were running with the goats. Oh, by the way, God's people are considered in Scripture as sheep. And he often makes comparison to goats. And he's saying, that don't run with the goats. They stink. May I tell you, that's wise advice. But in Moses' case, he's put on the backside of the desert with sheep. And I suspect that they'd stunk just as bad in the open air as they would in an enclosed environment. But whatever the case is, it's um, one of those places where God gets you alone and gets you to listen. And in this case, my thinking about sheep and so forth, on the backside of the desert, there probably wasn't anything out there except maybe some of these jackals uh, like little foxes that might hung around to see if there were any lambs born that they might uh, steal. Outside of that, all you would hear is the neigh of the baying of the sheep. And at night, there would be no sound probably at all. In other words, Moses didn't have anything to listen to. May have had something to read if he brought along any material. But he was just alone with him and a bunch of sheep and God. You think of um, growing, maturing, and being prepared for something that God has for you. Sometimes we think we have to get real busy and we have to really be engaged in a lot of things and sort of get God's attention that we're so busy. It's an interesting thing that for Moses, life was slowing down to a crawl. But as you think about it, let's say he had a hundred head of sheep. And let's uh, assume, by the way, part of this is uh, the fact that he kept the flock is, you know, he just made sure he oversight to that. But then when he led the flock, part of his responsibility would have been to move them from location to location so that they would have uh, proper eating and uh, water and so forth. So the fact is there would be occasion where you'd have to drive all 100 of them to a location where there'd be more pasture. And we think of a desert, and when we think of a desert, it's not the same idea of desert here. Uh, these were, there was pasture land in this. In fact, the Hebrew lends itself, in fact, in the latter part there, uh, the word led the flock carries with it a, a concept that led to what's needed. Well, we know we needed water and they needed pasture. So that's what the ideal of leading, that's where he led them. He led them from where they were bedded down at night, get them up and take them out in the morning to a pasture and where there'd be water, and this way they were moving constantly to a better location. Now, with that said, when they are settled in to where they're eating and where they're pasturing, they really want anything you do. You just keep an eye on them, look out over them. And all you would do and hear then would be with the sheep making sound of eating and they're chewing, uh, and then maybe moving around and butting one another's heads and all that kind of stuff. But Moses had a lot of time to do nothing. And sometimes uh, we in our society have gotten so busy, we can't hear him. We read our Bible sometimes in a rush. We say to ourselves, got to get this in. You know, I need to read my Bible today. That's important, and it is. But then we put this sort of spin on it that it's got to be done so I can say I did it. That's not the reason we do it. The reason we do it is so we can hear from home. It's a letter from home. And when we sit down and read God's Word, we ought to sit down and think and meditate and let it soak in. And the Bible is such that sometimes when you're troubled, 
the best thing to do is just go get your Bible and go to a quiet place in your home and sit down and let God use His Word to quiet your heart. Just recognize it's the same thing it would have been with Moses on the backside of the desert. Quiet place, nothing's interfering, nothing's going on. It's just you, God's Word, and listening. Still small voices. What does he say from his word to me? What's he telling me in this text? What does this text tell me I need to do? Because just as I've read, what is it I'm responsible for knowing now? What do I do because of what I know? Just you, the word, and him. And I say to you that that's the way it was with Moses, and that's how it works with us when we really get serious about uh, coming to know his will. There's one thing about the backside of the desert. There would be no poison of pride because there would be nothing to be proud about. You're on the backside of the desert with a bunch of sheep, and they stink to the high heavens, and uh, and you don't see anybody else around. There's no evidence there were a lot of other servants. There's no indication that uh, there was a lot of traffic going in and about. Its indication is in the backside of the desert, there's really nobody but the sheep and him. There's no way to be proud back there. How can he be be proud after he comes to 40 years from the palace and he's now on the backside of the desert with a bunch of stinking sheep? How could you get proud about that? Well, that's one of the things that most agree he's back there for. is because this prospect of where he came from, even with what he thought was the call of God for him to deliver the Hebrews, and he kills an Egyptian to get it done, was to tell him and to teach him, you do what I tell you to do in my timing. Not the way you think it should be done. You wait on me to tell you. Don't go around killing the Egyptians. That's not the way we do it. And now because he didn't wait on the Lord, and the Pharaoh now has somehow heard about it, he's in the backside of the desert with a bunch of sheep and nobody else around, and there's nothing to be proud about. There's nothing to be overlording. These are a bunch of dumb sheep. They don't know what to do, and... and And you're going to have to be patient with them because they're not always going to go to the water when you try to drive them. And they're not always going to go to the next pasture just on your time. When you say it's time to move, they may not be ready to move. And you're going to have trouble. Boy, doesn't that sound like the 40 years in the wilderness? Oh, I wonder why if that's not why God brought him to the backside of the desert with a bunch of stinking sheep. Uh, I had a particular problem one time and a challenge was coming up and I had to deal with it here at the church. And uh, Stephen, who pastors Fostoria, um, he had he was in and he had to leave. And uh, he left me a note, and uh, I still have the note at home. I still read it occasionally. And he said, "Take heart. Sometimes God's sheep stink." I kept it because I, you know, I have to. I have to acknowledge that that was true. This was a this was a stinking thing, and it shouldn't have happened, but it did. And it was a reality it had to be dealt with, and it was going to take time and energy and all of that. And and uh, and he knew it because he said, uh, got, "You say, he said you got something on your mind," and I said, "Yeah, I got an issue I got to deal with, and uh, we'll get it done. Lord, will work it out. Everything will be okay in the end." And uh, so he had to go back to Michigan, and when he left, he wrote a note, left it in the, my desk at home. Just remember, sometimes God's sheep stink, but don't get discouraged. In effect, you got to keep tending them. 
And I say to you that in the case with Moses, what he's getting now is uh, just uh, flock leading 101 program because this is exactly what uh, is going to happen when he gets into the wilderness with the Hebrew slaves that had cried so much to the Lord about being set free. And he's going to eventually set them free under God's good hand. And then what's going to happen is they're going to turn into a bunch of sheep and a bunch of stinking sheep. They're going to complain. They're going to murmur. They're going to stand against Moses. They're going to stand against Aaron. They're going to cause all kinds of trouble. And they're going to also create a lot of death and dying. And um, when one of those occasions come about and the earth opens up itself and takes in all of those who stood against Moses, there were no graves in the wilderness. And uh, it's interesting that the Hebrew slaves that had been set free accused Moses that there were no graves in Egypt and you've brought us into the wilderness for us to die. You've, you've brought us here to kill us. Well, first off, if they'd really understood that God had called Moses to what he was doing and God had trained Moses for what he was doing, they would have trusted Moses with more confidence than that. You see, sometimes we uh, jump to conclusions by virtue of what we see that's not what we want and not what we would do and not how we would do it. And so we jump to some conclusions and think that, you know, this, this situation with Moses, he's all off base. He's not done anything right with these people. When in fact, God said, I'll show you that he did right. And he asked for all these people who were against Moses to show up at the front of the tabernacle and told them, as it were, to get on one side or the other of him. And when he did... God then tells the people to move away from them. And boy, when God tells somebody to move away from you, uh, you might begin to get concerned. So as soon as they moved away, the Bible says that the earth opened up and all these people fell in. And then the earth closed back up. It's true, there's no graves in the wilderness. But there were a lot of dead people. There's a whole lot of the family that was represented here. By the way, that family was of the family, the tribe of Levi. It amazes me. The reason was because they were saying, and we'll get that story someday maybe, but they were saying, you take too much on yourself. We are Levites. We, we belong to the same tribe, the priestly tribe, and you take too much on yourself. You need to let us do some of this. And Moses said, look, I'm doing what the Lord told me to do. He told me what to do. He told me who to pick, and he told me who to place, and I've done all that he's asked me to do. And, and if you have a, in effect, if you have a crow to pick, you need to pick it with him. And they didn't take that at all. They just complained and murmured against Moses. So Moses has taken about all he can, and then he says, um, the Lord speaks and says, tell these people to show up at the tabernacle tomorrow. And the Lord proves who is the guy he's chosen. And that didn't, uh, you'd have thought that would put a stop to it, but it didn't. The very next chapter, it says they murmured against Moses. Stinking sheep. So Moses is now in chapter 3, he's back there with the stinking sheep, and he's on the backside of the desert, and uh, he's doing his best to make sure that he does exactly what the Lord does and wants him to do. He's not showing any indication that he's unhappy in taking care of sheep. There is no evidence that he's looking at this and say, I cannot believe that here I am, uh, who was a prince in the, the, the palace of Egypt, and here I am on the backside of the desert with a bunch of stinking sheep. I can't believe this. You, you don't read that. 
In fact, everything you read about this whole episode is there's very little in it that would even suggest that he's unhappy. I don't think he is. I think that sometimes that to bring us down from where we are in our high perch and while we see ourselves as maybe being more important than we are, and when the Lord brings us down, if you catch on real quick, you'll learn to appreciate that because you know if the Lord can put you up, you can enjoy that when he puts you up, but he can also appreciate if he brought you down, he's got a plan for you. He's not abandoned you. He still loves you, and he's going to work through your life even if it's coming down as well as it is when it's going up. So when you get a promotion, that may not be the very best thing that could ever happen to you. Sometimes the best thing that could happen to you is you get demoted. And when you get demoted, you think to yourself, well, you know, the Lord doesn't love me and doesn't care for me. When in reality, he may be very much watching out for you and carefully considering what he's going to do with you from here on in. And getting you down to this level, he can use you more effectively. In Moses' case, I don't hear a single word of complaint Uh, Not a single word of murmuring, not a single word of disdain for taking care of sheep on the backside of the desert. It's as if he's already now humbled himself and he's he's accepted this as something that he needs to get. He needs to learn. He's he's in a position where he needs to know what it is that what God wants him to do. It's interesting, and if you hold your place here, one more passage, and you can get out of here. Look, if you would, in the New Testament to uh, the pastoral epistles, and this one, 1 Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, immediately when you mention that, you should be reminding of the fact that this is a passage that has to do with the qualifications of pastors and bishops. So in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the first seven verses, notice it says, uh, this is true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Now it's interesting that uh, the two verses that allude to the devil is verse 6, not a novice, that's uh, you know not someone who is a, um, sort of a naive kind of person, someone who's not been around for a while, doesn't know the ropes, and doesn't understand the way God operates. So this person to be a pastor or a bishop, he's not to be unexperienced, he's not to be naive, he's um, He's not to be someone who doesn't understand or know the ropes, so to speak. And the reason for that is is because the temptation of putting someone in a position to which they're not suited is something that can be devastating to the person who's put there. That's why it says, lest being lifted up, that is this novice, lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. That... uh, be a lot of ways to explain about all that, but the, the key point and factor of it is that if you or he, this person, this novice, gets lifted up, takes a position that he has not been properly trained for, and I'm not talking again about education, I'm talking about someone who's had experience in a relationship with be trained in the backside of the desert kind of relationship with the Lord, he uh, is then lifted up with pride. 
He looks at himself as being novice, but he's quite able to do something that many people didn't expect, or he's been given a job that's way above what anybody thought of him, and now he's excited because uh, he's beat all their expectations of him. But the problem is, verse 6 indicates this novice could very well fall flat on his face because he would be lifted up in pride and... um, before pride and a haunty spirit come and destruction or thereafter. So the fact is he could fall flat on his face and it could destroy him. So he would be put out of the ministry never to get to work and serve the Lord again. But that's not the only problem. In verse number 7, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Again, the devil gets in on both of these, and you can be assured that uh, any person who is training for a work that God wants him to do is going to have uh, battle, spiritual warfare, and that spiritual warfare is going to be pretty much directed by the devil himself. He's going to do everything he can to stop these people who've been uh, training for the ministry or being planned to take over a responsibility God's given them. He's going to do everything he can to stop that, and he will uh, pull every trick in the book to get it done. And so knowing that, it's interesting that everything that's said here about uh, the preacher, the bishop, and the qualifications of him, so you could take back to Exodus chapter 2 and apply them to what God was going to do with Moses to make sure that he didn't fall into the, the condemnation of the devil and that he did not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So what God works on are the very things that a pastor or a leader in a Bible-believing church would have to deal with. On the backside of the desert, Moses is getting the same college Bible class. He's being taught and trained that, uh, Moses, now when you get out of here, there are going to be some, some real tests of who you are in character and what you're doing and what your plans are and how you're going to cooperate with what I'm doing. So it's a matter of uh, somebody putting uh, unprepared believers in a place of responsibility, and when they are not prepared, as in the case with a novice in verse number 6, uh, then the, it not only ruins that person, it ruins the persons that that guy or that person was dealing with. So God is going to be in the same boat of dealing with Moses about this, because if Moses doesn't get right, he's going to be traveling with 600,000 Hebrews, or maybe a million by this time. And the fact is, he can ruin a lot of people with just one single bad mistake. Uh, We'll quit here tonight, but let me uh, remind you that as uh, we go further in uh, the life of Moses and these details, that uh, two times God gets angry with Moses, two times. And the two times he gets angry, it's uh, interesting that one of them is when Moses starts giving his excuses why he can't do what God says he wants him to go do. I would say this to you to save you some uh, heartache and headache and, uh, and maybe a rebuke from the Lord, is if the Lord calls you to do something, the first words out of your mouth ought not be, I can't do that. That's a sure sign that you don't trust him. Because if he's called you, you can be assured he'll equip you. And in the case with Moses, we know from Acts chapter 7 that he believed God had already called him or set him aside to be the deliverer for Israel, uh, the Hebrews in, in slavery. We can already see that in Acts chapter 7. So it's obvious Moses knew that's what he was supposed to be doing. It's interesting that Moses set out to do it, kills one Egyptian. I can only think if God ever laughs at something like that, I believe he laughed at that. 
when he thinks to himself, does Moses think he can kill all 600,000 of these, these Egyptian people? He's going to have to learn that he'll have to move at my command to accomplish what we need to accomplish. And so I believe God began to orchestrate getting Moses to run to the backside of the desert, marry Jethro's daughter, be a son-in-law to the priest of Midian, and God begins to sort of close the world in on him. So he's got this private conversation with God. And I believe at that point, all that you read in the Scriptures, all that we see about him, we begin to understand and, and comprehend that God is teaching Moses that in the place where he's going to use him, the only thing that's going to matter is him believing him and obeying him. When Moses shows his colors when God first gets angry at him is when God told him he wanted him to speak to Pharaoh and Moses comes unglued and says, I can't do that. And he uses a Hebrew word that the word is used twice in the same verse, but the Hebrew words are different. When he talked about being slow tongue and slow speech, same English word, two different Hebrew words. We'll get to that next time we're together, but the fact is that Moses knew exactly what he was explaining. He knew exactly what he was saying he can't do, but God also knew. And when God saw that, he got angry at him. Very angry at him. And the next time he gets angry at him is the occasion where he tells him, you'll get to go look over, but you'll not get to pass over into the promised land. You get to look over. By the way, I found it interesting. I was reading in devotions. I was I was chasing a rabbit, very frankly, and I ran across the passage in Deuteronomy where Moses is explaining, as he wrote Deuteronomy, he's explaining to the Israelites why he doesn't get to go over. And I think you, uh, when you read the life of Moses, you ought to read carefully how he explains it. Because uh, he does an excellent job of pulling no punches and blaming nobody but himself. He doesn't say, God did this and, and I just live with it or I'll accept it. and He doesn't say that. He speaks as if God was authoritative in what he did, and he did not, did not move in any direction out of order. God was absolutely correct in what he did, and I didn't get to go in. I won't get to go in. That's what he's saying. I won't get to go in. I can't cross over Jordan. I won't get to go over there with you. But uh, uh, And the reason is because, in effect, I didn't believe God. Well, that's the same problem he started out with probably started out with when God said, I want you to do this. I want you to go and talk to the Pharaoh. And he said, I can't do that. I'm a slow tongue, slow speech. And God became angry at him and adjusted that to get Aaron to do the talking and Moses to do the listening when God spoke. But the second time, it's the same problem. Let me leave you with this. It's important God's people learn from past failures. So if you make a mistake, learn from it. Because the tendency in the Scripture is to reflect the fact that the consequences get worse. In the first place, it was just, in essence, a reprimand. God said, in effect, you ought to believe me. I called you. I'll equip you. I'll train you. I'll send you. It'll go well. I'll be with you. Just go do what I tell you. And he doesn't do it that way. He doesn't accept that. So God gets angry at him then. Comes to the next occasion when God tells him something and about telling him to uh, speak to the rock. And he pulls up that rod that God gave him and struck it two times. And God just let him do it. And God didn't make him look bad. 
God made the water flow. The water flowed from that rock. And I'm sure the people thought, man, alive, look what this leader we got. This guy walks up to a flint rock and takes this rod out and strikes that thing two times as if to whip it into control and whip it into submission. And boy, out comes fresh water. This is some leader. But the fact of the matter is God told him to speak to the rock. And the Bible says God was angry at him. Moses testified that God was angry at him. And he was angry enough this time that he said, you'll not get to go in. You'll get to go up and look over, but you'll not get to go in. And he didn't. In fact, he was, uh, he was buried by God himself. I don't know how he pulled that off, and I don't know how it worked out. Nobody was up there with him. God went up, and uh, Moses was up and walked up, went up with him, but God only came down. To this day, nobody knows where Moses is buried and where his bones are. But when Moses wrote Deuteronomy, he didn't complain about it. He didn't blame God for it. He, in effect, said, this is why I did not get to go. I say this to you that it's important, and it's not just a last word to mull on for the evening, but any time there's a a failure, we don't obey God, and we can assume that God does not get angry like he used to, but you wouldn't have any biblical basis to say that. I believe God gets just as angry when his children today do not obey him as he did when Moses disobeyed him. The second time you disobey, it's taken to another level of God's irritation. I'm confident that it's the same. I think we try to change God when we bring him to the New Testament truths, and I don't think we have any biblical basis to do that. I do believe God works in grace, and I do believe he works in mercy, but I believe he worked in grace, and he worked in mercy in the Old Testament. I believe Moses experienced as much grace as I've experienced, or you've experienced. I believe they are in different settings and different circumstances, but I believe as God got angry when one of his servants disobeyed him, did not trust him, I believe he gets just as angry when we don't. And I believe it's important for you and I to understand that because if long as we think he's, he's just this grandfatherly guy up in the heavens and, and he just sort of laughs it off that we've sinned and we've done something wrong and we didn't do it right and we didn't trust him enough to step out by faith and we just fluff it off, I say to you, I don't think we understand him. I believe the Bible holds to a higher standard than that. And I believe that we've talked ourselves into lessening the sovereignty, authority of God. And I think we have to be very careful about that. So don't take disobedience lightly, and don't take presuming on His grace lightly, because I believe He still gets angry. And I say to you this week, as you go about your routine of responsibilities, be careful that if um, you've been faced with or will be faced with an issue of Judging whether you should do something or shouldn't, judge carefully, did God say what you should do about it? If he did, you better do that in entirety, in completion, and don't do it half-heartedly and halfway, but do it fully. And uh, I believe if you don't, you'll have both the consequences as a result of your failure to obey, but also, I believe, the very fact of you're not doing what he told you to do. I think we'll both break his heart and increase his anger.
So I say to you, uh, as surely as you're told to be angry and sin not, the Lord is angry sometimes at our sin because we don't do what we were told to do and we knew to do better. A parent spanks a child sometimes for the same exact thing. child knew better. child still did what they shouldn't have done. The parent loves the child, but it doesn't excuse not being punished for disobeying. God is the best parent going. He loves his children. He treats them fairly and justly and graciously and with mercy. So let's not disappoint him, and certainly let's not make him mad. Let's pray, and you may go. We'll not sing, so we'll be dismissed from the floor. If you'll stand with me, please. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for the opportunity we have to assemble ourselves together around it. And I pray that we'll gain much from this life of this good man. And the further we go into his life, the more convinced we are, Father, that uh, he was a godly and gracious man. And, Father, though he made mistakes just like we do, we thank you for what's said about him and for the honorable position that you put him in and all that Moses accomplished in the years that you gave him. And thank you for the illustrations that he poses for us to teach us and to show us how he handled uh, the matters of leading the Israelites out of bondage of Egypt. And thank you for the great miracles that you worked around him and those people in delivering them. And Father, I do pray you'll help all of us, every one of us who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior. I pray you'll impress heavy on our hearts that we obey you fully and completely and that rather we not make the mistakes, the two major mistakes that Moses made in regard to excusing himself because he couldn't do what the Lord, you Father, called him to do. And number two, that he disobeyed you in regard to exactly what you asked him to do about speaking to the rock. Instead of speaking, he hit it. And Father, help us not to make such foolish mistakes. Help us to be precise and exact in our obedience to you as it's recorded in your word. I pray you'll guide our steps this week. Help us to bear a good witness. Help us to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. And pray that we might be able to share the gospel with someone as we go about our routine this week. Do pray you'll bless our people. Thank you for their faithfulness on a Sunday night. Pray you'll give them safety in getting home. Give them a good rest. Refresh them for a good week. And may we bring honor and glory to your name in all that we do and say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.